Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the confidence and direction which this psalm uh, gives to us as we face the future. Uh, we thank you for the encouragement that uh, your word is a sufficient and uh, lively source uh, for us as we seek to uh, serve you in the, in, the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you too for this confidence that in the end, those who rebel against you will be swept away. And so we pray this session, uh, you'll help for this session, you'll help Rod, and you'll help us learn better how to serve you in the current circumstances we face, so that your main name may be honoured, and indeed great fruit brought forth to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Rod, would you come up, please? Rod, I think most people know who you are, but uh, it might not be a bad time to just give us an update. Uh, you've already been, was it two and a half or three and a half years you've been in post now? Uh, two and, and a half, yeah. yeah. Okay. September 2015. And let's, let's do some numbers, a number of dioceses that are sort of where you're involved. Oh, I'm involved in lots, over 20, but yeah. um, I'm an assistant bishop, bishop in 14. Right, Okay. Numbers that have passed the letter of request? That means I've taken the oath of canonical obedience 14 times. <laughs> oh and I've so got 14 a, licenses. Okay, you'll be an expert of that. Okay. Absolutely. Sorry, what were you yes, I, I was asking about letters of request. Uh, yeah, uh, um, uh, at the moment, I think it's 121 um, uh, churches that have passed resolutions yeah. to send in a letter of request. And I have an active role uh, with about 70. So you've been kept busy? Yep. Yes. And uh, just, just finally, looking back over what's already happened, what has been the, well, two things perhaps. What, what is the most significant thing you've been able to do so far? And secondly, perhaps, what are the things you feel the real need to focus on? Um, in terms of significant things I've been able to do so far, I think probably the most significant is to get the role of the Bishop of Maidstone on the map. Um, and to um, have it accepted in dioceses that I should be involved mm. in parishes which pass resolutions. That wasn't always clear at the outset yeah. um, because I was only actually appointed to articulate the views of conservative evangelicals on issues to do with male headship, mm. not mm. to be a flying bishop per se. And indeed, one bishop has written in to the... Uh, House of Bishops group that's looking into the aftermath of Philip North's failure to be the Bishop of Sheffield, they've written in saying that um, uh, uh, I, I shouldn't be uh, adopting the role that I am um, and that you know, I was never created for this purpose. Uh, I'm delighted to say I rebutted that uh, robustly 
and, um, and, and that view isn't widely shared. So I think that's probably the most significant yeah. achievement. What, what about, can I just ask a little bit about focus and uh, what do you think is the, the most important area where you can be of use or be working? Hmm. Um, I think uh, the, the most important area where I can be working um, is that of um, being seen as a teaching bishop. Uh, I, I guess the most important issue, the presenting issue that we're faced with is the issue of sexuality. So it's very important that I remain clear on that, um, that I'm clear um, about the need for us not to be focused solely on that issue, mm -hmm. but there are other issues you know, that we need to repent of as well, like greed and grumbling and things like that. Um, uh, uh, I was at a preaching workshop yesterday and somebody was saying uh, materialism you know, is something we need to repent of. But I do need to stand firm on sexuality um, and therefore we need to be clear that, uh, that, that sexual relationships outside of marriage between a man and a woman um, in God's eyes are sinful and um, you know, we should be lovingly and compassionately calling people to repentance. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Rod. Um, I'm going to hand over to Rod now. We hope there'll be a, a bit of time for questions, but in brief, as I've got uh, a brief to be <laughs> keep to time. Two advantages to being president. Yeah, I should have, well, one, is, president. one is that Sorry, you can yeah. ask somebody else to deal with the problems, and the other is I don't have to attend the council. The... Um, <laughs> the uh, thank you very much, by the way, for your kindness earlier um, in uh, electing me and Wallace for those uh, unduly nice words. Thank you very much indeed. You've been a great friend uh, throughout the whole process of uh, uh, this business of being a bishop. Um, thank you very much. As you've, I didn't have a cross to wear at one stage and you, you gave me yours and you said at that time it was apostolic succession. Um, it's, it, you know, we're, we're, we're only apostolic if we follow apostolic truth, aren't we? Uh, the, the church is only apostolic if it follows the apostles' teaching. Um, and that, of course, does present us with difficulties in the Church of England. Um, yeah, we want to take the apostles' teaching seriously, and the question that we're looking at this afternoon is, how do we do that? How do we follow through these, the, the point that Lee was making earlier about exclusion of those who either live immoral lives or, or advocate it? How do, we, how do we do that in the Church of England, given that its official position is entirely biblical? Well, we're going to be hopefully working through that together. I'll try and leave enough time for questions so that we can discuss this. Um, I don't pretend to have all the answers, and indeed uh, you will feel that parts of what I have to say are very partial, uh, and they may not actually touch on the issues that are of deepest concern to you. Uh, that's not because I'm wanting to suggest that uh, yours are less important than these. It is purely that in the time available, only a partial job can be done. So uh, as we come to this whole question of flourishing in the Church of England, uh, we need to start by defining our terms. Now, the Faith and Order Commission, uh, which produced uh, this little guide to the five guiding principles, says that flourishing means prayerfully encouraging all within the Church of England 
that they might prove fruitful in proclaiming the kingdom of God, not wanting any to dwindle or fail. Well, we would, I hope, all say amen to that, because we're not saying we want everyone to be fruitful in proclaiming whatever they want. We want everyone to be fruitful in proclaiming the kingdom of God. However, we do know that there are some in the Church of England who see flourishing in terms of encouraging everyone, irrespective of how deep their differences go. And while we can seek to work that out uh, over, you know, what many of us would see as second-order issues, such as uh, men's and women's ministries, it cannot and should not be done when there is disagreement over primary gospel issues. Uh, if we paper over those and seek everybody to flourish over primary gospel issues, well then, uh, we risk developing into the sort of Church of England that uh, J.C. Ryle sought to avoid when he said that if the Church of England becomes a kind of Noah's Ark within which every kind of opinion and creed shall dwell safe and undisturbed, then the end result, unless God interfered, would be either popery or infidelity. So is that the stage we've reached? Is that where we are? Certainly, uh, we are uh, seeing some numerical decline in the Church of England. Apparently, some dioceses have um, a lower percentage of church-going population than Japan. Well, I think the answer to the question depends on the way the Bible itself defines flourishing and on the extent to which the wider Church of England can ever take responsibility for making that happen. And what I want to suggest in the time I've got this afternoon is that our fight with, within the, the Church of England is a fight for our identity as an apostolic church, but also the extent to which um, we flourish within the church depends uh, on uh, uh, not just the opportunities the Church of England gives us, but our own convictions about the primacy of the word of God and the way we help one another sustain ourselves in that conviction. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at two biblical views of flourishing. Then I'm going to look at the extent to which the Church of England provides the right environment for that to happen. And then finally, what our responsibilities should be when it comes to flourishing in the Church of England. First then, two biblical views of flourishing. Um, you will see that the picture on the right is a picture of Legatus as a young man. Um, it, it's not quite. I'll, I'll uh, explain why that's there in a moment. Um, for, our, for our first picture of flourishing, we're going to look back to Psalm 1 that was read for us a little earlier. Um, I don't know how you go about preparing for uh, giving expositions. Um, because I find time constrained um, in preparation at the moment, um, I tend to make use of the preaching workshop that I go to. So I take any old thing that I've prepared, get them to maul it, and in the process they do half of my prep for me. I did this with Psalm 1. And... Um, uh, and uh, I don't think it would be any secret that uh, Jonathan is the one who 
uh, presides at the preaching workshop I go to, and he said, what's the surprise in Psalm 1? Uh, you know, immediately I start dithering. And uh, he said, well, you would have thought, wouldn't you, that in the opening psalm of the Psalter, there would be a psalm of praise to God. But what do you find? It's a psalm about human beings, about people, about man. And that is extraordinary, isn't it? Because as you go through this psalm, you see that we do indeed have a choice between two ways to live. We can either walk, stand and sit with the wicked and sinful, or we can delight and meditate on the law of the Lord, verses 1 and 2. And if we do the latter, then we get this lovely picture in verses 3, well, in verse 3, of flourishing. It's a picture of a person flourishing, like a tree. So unlike the wicked who are like chaff that is blown away, here is something that is planted and growing. And it's planted in a fertile place, it is well watered, well fed, and it is fruitful. It's healthy and fruitful. That is a picture of flourishing. And it all depends on the law of the Lord. Now that's for the individual. But there's another biblical view of flourishing, and that is what applies to the church. And for that, I've turned to Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 to 16, this is what we read. He, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So here's the second image of a body that is growing, hence the, uh, the, 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 the picture. Now, uh, what, what we're presented with here is that... Um, the church is crucial for our growth in holiness, into being Christ-like. And it involves speaking the truth to one another in love. It means the exercise of the teaching gifts that God has given to the church. And that is a picture of flourishing. Now, what do these two images, the body and the tree, what do they have in common? Well, in both cases... Uh, they are surrounded by those who are opposed to it happening. They're surrounded by those who are opposed to it happening. So in Psalm 1, you've got the comparison between those who delight in the law of the Lord and the wicked. And in Ephesians 4, you've got those who, uh, you know, will um, uh, be deceitfully scheming and will be proposing all sorts of different doctrines 
in the hope that people will chase after them. So the two tend to go together, and it's no surprise, therefore, that as you read through the New Testament letters, and in particular the pastorals, but not, uh, not, not limited to those at all, uh, you find that the proclamation of the gospel is always accompanied by contending for the gospel and contending for it within the church. So the fact that you are having to spend time contending does not mean you are not flourishing. It's one of the points that, Paul, that, 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 that Lee was making this morning, wasn't it? That persecution sees the growth of the church. Now, the other thing that the passages have in common is that flourishing depends on relying on God's word. So in Psalm 1, an individual is fruitful when they're based on the law of the Lord. And in Ephesians 4, we grow up into Christ as we speak the truth to one another in love and as we take advantage of the ministry uh, of those who bring the word to us, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. Now, you, you might say I'm, I'm speaking to the converted, uh, and, and I know that I am. But um, there are many ways in which we are, I suppose, encouraged to keep quiet about this. I remember a, a dreadful Newsnight interview on BBC Two where um, Jane Ozan and I uh, were taking part in a debate. And Jane Ozan was saying that it was teaching of the sort that I was advocating that led her to go to hospital. In other words, those who treat the word of God this way are dangerous. Uh, we, we hear the criticism that by being word-based, we are cerebral and dry. And we know that's not true, because we know in our own lives, don't we, that as we've taken the word of God and applied it, so we've discovered his faithfulness, and it's, and it's brought life to uh, all that we set our hands to. Yesterday, someone was telling me that they'd been on the phone to a man who knew himself to be dying of cancer, but who was a committed Christian. And he said he, when he got off the phone, he came away deeply impressed by how full of life the man was. Isn't that interesting? So we do need to just be reminded that flourishing starts by taking God's word seriously. And it is seen in gospel fruitfulness and growing holiness. It's also often accompanied by those who tell us we've got it wrong. So that's the first, the biblical view of flourishing. And now secondly, does the Church of England provide a good environment for this sort of flourishing to take place? Well, let me go through five things that I think are good about the Church of England, five reasons we should rejoice to be part of the Church of England, and those same headings also give us five reasons to be worried. So, first of all, the doctrinal basis of the Church of England. Well, we know, don't we? Canon A5, the doctrine of the Church, is grounded in the Holy Scriptures and in such teachings of the ancient fathers and councils of the Church as are agreeable to the said Scriptures. In particular, found in 39 articles, the Book of Common Prayer and the Ordinal. So, 
uh, the Church of England officially supports the idea of flourishing based on God's word. That would give us our identity if it were not for the fact that in practice, so often, our doctrine is undermined. So uh, synod debates and discussions are sometimes, quite often in fact, particularly on contentious issues, they don't start with scripture, they're not grounded in scripture. It's only uh, after the debate has long progressed that finally Angus Maclay is called in order to ground us scripturally on what is happening. Services can take place which get perilously close to changing our doctrine and liturgy of marriage. The core doctrine of propitiatory atonement can be attacked on the grounds that it breeds forms of abuse, and so on. Now, uh, you know, we, when doctrine is challenged, uh, we stand up for it. We are called to contend. But what do you do when it is taught? And there, we have to remember that our identity as Anglicans is found in this clear doctrinal basis. And therefore... Uh, we are inevitably uh, going to be thinking about impaired communion and, uh, and an action taken to teach the, the, the wrong thing results in others saying you have impaired your communion with the Church of England. Now, um, we've looked at um, uh, doctrine. Second good thing about the Church of England, its evangelistic potential. Its evangelistic potential um, I don't know if you've ever looked at the figures on the uh, numbers of places of worship that the different denominations have. Uh, you'll see in the top right, I've uh, uh, nothing particularly to say about East Worthing Baptist Church, but if you look at the number of uh, church buildings that the Baptist Union of England and Wales ha had in 2016, they had 2,150 the FIEC, the Independent Evangelical Churches, they had 568. The Roman Catholics, 2,457. But the Church of England had 16,000. They vastly outnumber uh, the others. Now, that's not to crow, because we know that in so many places, um, uh, you know, it's difficult to know who is getting any ministry through those churches and what ministry they're getting. But nevertheless, it just shows, doesn't it, that if you want to reach every community, the Church of England has some physical facilities that aren't badly placed to do it. And then you add to that various other statistics, like, for example, the number of church schools, uh, and we've got a quarter of all the primary schools uh, in, the, in the country... Uh, we've got a quarter of the primary schools in the country, and you realise just what the scope is for reaching the nation. Uh, of course, to counter that, we have to recognise that sometimes what happens is that so far from hearing the word of God, people hear a variety of other things. And there is particular concern over some of what is taught in schools. Um, and if any of you are in touch with Lisa Nolan, you will know about her concern over some of the materials that are presented and some of those who are advising uh, schools on the policies they should adopt. Um, then there is 
Inclusivity. Inclusivity. I know you all regard this as a virtue. <laughs> um, curiously enough, I do, because I was brought up in the exclusive brethren. And I have seen uh, what can happen if you are unduly exclusive. Uh, inclusivity in the Church of England um, is really characterised by the church seeing itself as not a denomination, but as um, a national church, a church for the nation. So you can argue that the idea of being connected with your community, taking an interest in what's going on, and wanting your community to take an interest in you, is sort of in our DNA. And that's great for reaching people with the gospel. It's very good that we're connected in those sorts of ways. Of course, the flip side to that is that very often we include too much of the world in the church. And that is where uh, it, it goes wrong. Uh, let's come to the issue of governance. I can see you're excited. Post-lunch, this is a difficult subject to talk about. But can I say that governance is one of the things that makes me pleased to be part of the Church of England. You see, uh, the, the, the great thing about the Church of England is the way it has checks and balances. The, 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 the way, you know, the, the PCC has to endorse a change in liturgy for it to take place in the church, but doesn't have the ability to sack uh, the vicar. The way the vicar can, um, uh, um, uh, can stop the bishop preaching in his church if he wants, uh, but at the same time has to be licensed by him. Um, the bishop, you know, he has certain rights, you know, that, that of licensing, uh, but as I said, can't preach unless he's invited. Um, these checks and balances are very important if you have a view of the fallenness of human beings. Because if you believe that we are all fallen creatures, then you will know that if you give somebody too much power, uh, it will uh, lead to corruption in one way or another. So balancing these things is very important. Of course, you can argue, and this is the flip side, that the balance has gone wrong. And this can express itself in a number of ways. It can express itself in synods, by synods being unduly influential, particularly when it comes to matters of doctrine. Um, it can um, be subtly changed by uh, the church attempting to deal with its shortage of resources by over-centralising their responses and undermining uh, the autonomy of congregations. And in the next few years, we're going to see bodies like the Crown Nominations Commission being really critical to what happens in the Church of England. I think someone was saying to me yesterday that in the next year and a half, uh, there are likely to be five diocesan bishops replaced. Uh, and at the moment, the Crown Nominations Commission um, has lost one of its so-called traditionalists, um, and it is more liberal than it was. So, you know, we, we do have these concerns arising out of governance um, in the Church of England. Now, um, uh, these are the pluses and minuses. Um, uh, here's another plus, current initiatives. Uh, there are some things that are quite good. I, I, I quite like the renewal and reform process. <coughs> Uh, in the Church of England because it's new emphasis on discipleship. Uh, there's Rick Thorpe, the Bishop for Church Planting. Um, there is um, a wholly new approach to church planting within the Church of England. Some dioceses that have never, ever 
have any experience of church planting are now embracing it uh, very fully. Um, and then the two archbishops uh, with the Thy Kingdom Come initiative for Whit Sunday or running up to Whit Sunday with people praying that others would come to know Christ uh, are great things. On the other hand, not all initiatives are uh, so une uh, are, are unequivocally good. Not that all these are either. Um, uh, for example, the initiative the House of Bishops is taking to come up with a new teaching document on sexuality, marriage and relationships is something that is deeply concerning uh, for the future. So here are the things that make the Church of England good to be part of. They are also the same things where we can be concerned about what is going on. So uh, the question then is, what should we do? Lastly, what should we be doing? Um, you'll have gathered that my first answer is that we should be contending uh, for the gospel. Um, but secondly, uh, in terms of our, whether we regard ourselves as able to flourish in the Church of England, um, I want to say that that's a much more nuanced question than it first, first appears. You see, uh, the Church of England cannot of itself enable our life to flourish. It can give us space to flourish, and it can close down the space. And we know that in some ways both of those things are happening simultaneously within the Church of England. So you get encouragements um, of, of church planting initiatives, new staff being um, sanctioned by dioceses, um, people like Paul Williams in Sutherland not saying, you know, send me as many Oak Hill curates as, as want to come here. I can't guarantee I'll place them with a conservative evangelical incumbent because we haven't got that many, but we will do our level best to support them um, while they're with us, and we, we want them in our diocese. Donald Allister, likewise, in Peterborough. There are m many dioceses which are very, very open to our ministry and welcoming to it. Um, on the other hand, uh, we also know that there are examples of people that appear on the face of it to close down opportunities, particularly for complementarian clergy, uh, on the grounds that, well, there are no complementarian churches here, so there's nothing available for you, uh, as though we couldn't apply to uh, any other evangelical church. Now, I'm not going to name particular dioceses, but you know, we do know that sometimes these things happen. It may not be church officials, it may be parish reps who say it, it may be that we suspect certain patronage bodies to be um, uh, limiting opportunities that exist. Um, uh, um, th both things happen in the Church of England. It was great to read, incidentally, in that Faith and Order Commission report on the five guiding principles, that it said flourishing means not corralling people in their own boundaries. That was good to read, because if we're going to flourish, we want to grow. Um, so the Church of England is, is, is both pro and against uh, our flourishing um, uh, and all of the things that matter to us. But what else, what else needs to happen for our life to flourish? Um, and here it, is, here it is that I want us to remember our ecclesiology. Now, you will know um, that um, in um, Article 19... Uh, we read that the church is a congregation 
of faithful men. Now, that has uh, given rise to some debate about what the idea of the con what this, this expression congregation means. Does it mean the local church congregation in a locality? Does it mean regional or does it mean national? Uh, there are arguments both ways, but I am persuaded by um, David Holloway's thinking on this, and if anybody uh, wants to have the detail of that, do ask David to uh, email you um, a very helpful paper he's written on it. Essentially, David's argument is that um, uh, Article 19 does indeed refer to the local congregation, uh, because the Latin for that word congregation is a word meaning the bringing together, the gathering together uh, of people. And when you compare the language of Article 19 with con contemporaneous material, and in particular with things like the homily for Whit Sunday and so on, you see that the wording is carefully different from the wording that might have suggested a wider gathering of Christians. It's carefully different, which seems to imply that Article 19 says that the church is a congregation. And this fits, I think, with New Testament teaching, that it's about the local congregation. So our ecclesiology is that we start with what's going on in the parish. We start with the local church. And when we want to talk about the Church of England, that's where we start. Now, if that is where we start, what is it that will encourage us to maintain our convictions about the primacy of the Word of God? Because that's what we need to do. We need to sustain our conviction that the Word of God is what enables us to flourish. Um, and there, uh, I think, we, we see that uh, it's vitally important uh, that we help one another. Um, you might say, well, what do you mean? Go to a deanery chapter and, 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 and expect encouragement. Um, no, I don't mean that. I mean doing things like we've done today. I mean coming together as a group of people who share exactly the same convictions and who want to support one another in gospel outreach, in growth in holiness, based on God's word. And we support one another in doing it. Today is a great exercise in, in saying we are committed to supporting one another. In other words, it's not down to the Church of England here to make us flourish. It's down to us to encourage one another in this process. And, um, and, and where else do we draw encouragement? Well, we don't draw encouragement just from within the Church of England. We draw encouragement from our, our gospel partnerships. We draw encouragement from AMIE. I mean, I think personally, having very good relationships between our newly merged body and AMIE is very important because AMIE can challenge us about whether we're becoming a bit complacent within the Church of England as it is, and we can similarly challenge AMIE about the extent to which uh, they are uh, um, being Anglican in their evangelicalism. Um, so sustaining conviction by supporting one another. Um, there are, of course, things that we should be doing within the Church of England. Um, it is absolutely critical that we, uh, in, hopefully in this newly merged body, but more widely within 
through the auspices of the Church of England Evangelical Council, it's absolutely critical that we encourage people to stand for election to the General Synod. Um, it was great to see um, uh, um, a new member here who's just got in on a by-election. I don't know if he's still here. Um, I haven't personally met him, but he was pointed out to me, wherever you are. Who's, who's just got in on a by-election? I'm looking. Oh, right. Oh, well, yeah. Are you taking a register? Yes. All right. Put him down as absent without leave. Um, good. Well, we need to get people elected to the General Synod, um, and not least because these issues of sexuality um, could come home to roost in the next quinquennium, in other words, 2020 to 2025. Once the bishop's teaching document has come through, if there is any attempt to change liturgy, which is a critical way in which the Church of England expresses its doctrine. If there is any attempt, it will be then. And we need people in place, not to be a majority, but to be a sufficiently large blocking minority. We keep saying the Church of England is on a trajectory, don't we? A, tra a trajectory of unfaithfulness when it comes to things like gender and sexuality. But it's only on that trajectory until it hits a brick wall. And the brick wall is... You have to get a two-thirds majority in every house of the General Synod in order for new liturgy to be either approved or commended. Now, all we've got to do, therefore, is have one-third plus one. Now, we can make common cause with others who don't necessarily share our particular outlook. But unless we've got a good number in General Synod, we won't be able to do that. And we must because we must hold the Church of England's identity so that we can indeed operate with integrity within a church that we can claim is apostolic. Um, can we learn from what others have done? I'm very conscious that in the 19th century, the Anglo-Catholics uh, managed to have huge influence on the Church of England. And although they did it partly through all their theological work, they also did it by going to the places that nobody else would go to. So they went to the urban places where there were substantial cholera outbreaks and they set up shop there and they won people over by the, their sincerity in their theology and by their compassion in their outreach. Can we go to the unpopular places? If we feel that we're being stymied in one place, can we go somewhere else? Why don't we apply for those northern parishes? Johnny Jukes was telling me that in one of the parishes in Hull, where he's just come from, that um, despite the fact that it was open, wide open for evangelical ministry, not a single person applied. And we've got vacancies coming up. Terrific churches. Clacton, for example. Uh, you know, great opportunity. Um, you know, lots of them coming up. And we need people to go outside their normal comfort zone. Well, um, there are lots of things that we can do to sustain one another in God's word, to be fruitful in evangelical and evangelistic outreach, and to grow in holiness. We know, of course, that those with whom we contend are engaged in a spiritual battle with us, and unless we are prayerful people, then we cannot really expect uh, God to have mercy on us, um, though he might. Um, I hope that our newly merged society, whatever else we do, will be marked 
by seriousness about prayer, both for the nation and for the church. Because without that, none of what we're talking about is really uh, worth the time. I'll stop there. We've got ten minutes, I think. Thank you very much, Rod. Well, now's an opportunity to uh, ask questions of Rod uh, on the basis of what things. So please, uh, far ahead, stick around. Uh, Ian Dobbing, yes. uh, General Synod. Uh, the point you've made about uh, the General Synod and uh, are needing a third uh, in each of the houses uh, to, to achieve uh, blocking um, unworthy legislation, it's going to be very difficult to achieve that in the House of Clergy because they are packed full of women and 45 out of 59 uh, women voted uh, unusefully on the last motion we had relating for a liturgy for same-sex uh, marriage and that sort of thing. Uh, it's the House of Laity where I think we're most likely to achieve the success we need. And so there is where I think we can make our, 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 our greatest effort uh, when it comes to general synod elections. Thank you, Ian. Can I just say that as things currently stand, there are two houses where it's worth paying attention. One is the House of Bishops, and the other is the House of Laity. So we need to get people elected to laity. At the moment, I think there would be a one-third blocking minority at least in the House of Bishops. And um, Julian Henderson is foremost in encouraging um, uh, that minority to stand firm. Rod, um, we know the difficulty is incremental slow change. What is the red line? What position on sexuality is the no-go, because many are calling for us to go, to not associate with unbelievers. What's the and how long do we keep contending within the church? Thank you, Mary. Um, I, I wish I had a totally clear answer for you. I've, I've developed a clear answer for myself, but it's no more than a working proposition. Um, it's not because I'm convinced that it's absolutely right. Um, I, I believe, like Lee was saying this morning, that um, you need to um, dissociate from false teachers. Um, and uh, you were saying, Lee, about excluding, being clear about exclusions from the church. Now, within the Church of England, we have not got an apostate church because its doctrine is still faithful to scripture. But what we do have is developing practice, incremental practice. Um, and I believe that needs to be met by a clearly stated distance. And that distance is expressed through impaired communion. So if you're not, not um, having communion with people, if you're not going to services of worship, possibly not eating with people, you know, it's a way of expressing uh, that impairment. Um, so where is the red line and what do we do about incremental things? Well, I'll tell you where, what my working proposition is. My working proposition is that my red line is no change in doctrine or liturgy. Um, because liturgy expresses doctrine. And that includes permissive liturgy. So if there is any change in that towards the accommodation of same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships, to me, that crosses a red line. I, I know this, this judgment is not shared by all, 
but to me it would make my ministry in the Church of England impossible. Um, up until that point, I'm, I subscribe to what the Church of England believes. And if others don't, I may have to distance myself from them in, to different degrees. Flourishing is the issue, or the, the title. Alan Bob of Derby. Yeah. Um, just commenting on how we might be able to do some of these things, Rob. When I was uh, 50 years ago, a young member in our church, our vicar arranged for me to stand for what was then church assembly. Um, unlike what I did take on, he did get permission from the director of Rolls Royce, as it were, um, for me to get time off to go to church assembly meetings during the year, which was a great thing, although it didn't, it didn't really please my bosses uh, immediately. Um, but it was a great opportunity to learn with others, and I was one of probably a group of 30 young evangelicals at that time, when the, uh, first of all, the canons were being, canon law was being revised, when eventually the Anglo-Methodist uh, conversations came up, and many other things, beginning of the uh, <coughs> change of the prayer book. And although, I mean, I was greatly influenced by, uh, particularly Jim Packer, in, in what we did in this, with having a firm biblical basis for doing it. And I was very, very thankful that, uh, that I was given that opportunity despite the, the cost of your life at work, for, for doing it. And I just wonder how we can do that same sort of thing and encourage young evangelicals in our churches, young evangelical lay people like me, to be able to stand up and be ready to make such a commitment in doing it uh, if, for the important reasons that you've just said. Thanks, Alan. Well, I think one of the things you're pointing to is the knowledge that if you are elected to the General Synod, you will be supported in your evangelicalism. Uh, that's one of the things you've been saying, and that you'd have a good group to support you. Well, there is a, there is a good group uh, within the General Synod that still does that, a 1992 group. Um, sometimes they you know, engage in fairly uh, robust argument amongst themselves about where they should stand on particular issues, but by and large, it is a very supportive fellowship. Uh, and, and we just need to make that better known to people. It is a way in which you can contend for the gospel. And if you do contend, you will grow in your faith. Thanks. There was someone in the far distance. Okay, okay, go to you, John. John Simmons, Manchester. Rod, um, well, you have a problem. How do we persuade the Lord to stop calling people to the Cotswolds and Surrey and call them to, <laughs> call them instead to Oldham and Hull? Well, John, uh, we, d we, we do it by pointing out what fabulous opportunities there are. So, in your case, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a delight to see you know, one of your staff members having just got through her BAP to be a permanent deacon. Uh, and this is in the Diocese of Manchester. Brilliant. Um, if you want opportunity, go north. Thank you. Um, it is very, very encouraging. It's also very troubling. I think the thing I find hardest is it's easy to contend where you don't have to put yourself under the authority of false teachers. It's easy to contend in that way. The, the difficulties come where you're being trained by a false teacher as a training incumbent. And if one 
distances oneself from that, that almost certainly means the end of a training opportunity. It doesn't have to. Which is where, dare I say, your role and the role of others are crucial. You know, if we're going to flourish in the biblical sense of that word, we must have opportunities not just to revitalize and recover, but also to train people themselves. That is the difficulty of conscience I have, is that I have to put myself in the hands of a false teacher to be trained as a training company. And if I distance myself from him, that has all kinds of implications. And it's not for me and possibly for my curate, but for opportunities in our diocese. Would you like to comment on well, Bob, I, 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 I do appreciate entirely the difficulty you're referring to, but um, the question is what constitutes putting yourself under the authority of? Um, in many cases, the training that you receive to be a training incumbent isn't actually touching on any spiritual matter at all. Um, it's, it's not going to be... It's not going to be um, talking to you about how you help your curate uh, develop their preaching ministry or go deeper in their exegesis or uh, better apply uh, the truth that they're seeking to communicate or um, talk to them about their prayer life. Um, so often the training is, 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 is much more uh, managerial, it's about whether you've covered the areas however you see them including spiritual areas but it's about covering them um, and they do that uh, pure, you know, the only reason half of this goes on is because of the desire under common tenure to avoid any complaints subsequently from um, a curate that they were inadequately prepared for their incumbency and they want to be able to show that they have been adequately prepared. So I'm not sure I would regard this as putting yourself under the authority of them so much as being facilitated in the exercise of your own authority. Right. I, I think we probably need to, to stop there, actually. Um, I've been given strict instructions, but perhaps we can just uh, encourage Rod in his ministry with a round of applause. Thank you.